Um, so I'm going to start my message, and kind of halfway through my message, I'm going to dismiss them, and you'll see why. Well, open your Bibles this morning to Isaiah chapter 40. In the life of any church, uh, you guys can sit down. Oh, you know what? How about the children go get notes? And uh, I want your kids come on up and get notes. I... and dismiss the musicians. All right, all right. It's good for me too. I don't have everything under control. I try and um, buy whatever. Well, in the life of any church, there comes a time, and this time is periodic and often that we always need to reorient ourselves to the basics of our faith. And uh, this Sunday morning, and perhaps over the next several Sunday mornings, um, I want to help orient ourselves again to one of the most basic tenets of of Christianity, which is the greatness of God. I want to reflect this morning upon the strength, the power, and the might of God because we serve a great and awesome God. My aim this morning in my message is to blow your minds away. That's what I want to do. It's pretty. I want to blow your minds away. I want to see each of your heads like... Explode. My message this morning is entitled The Greatness of God in the Stars. Introduce introduce my topic. Isaiah 40, verse 26 is a great verse to introduce my topic this morning. Lift up your eyes and see. Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these stars. The one who leads forth their host by number, he calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. I want to ask you a question this morning. Have you ever been off, away from the city someplace? There's no more city lights. You're out in the farm someplace, or maybe you're on vacation, or maybe you're you're out, out someplace, and you happen to be out there in the evening... And you look up and you go like this. You say, see all these stars across the sky. What do you always say? Whoa! How many of you had that experience before? Good. And um, when you've had that experience, I bet that some of you have even called others to come along with you, right? Uh, This past uh, week on vacation... There was a portion of time we're in California. I think the stars in California are more beautiful than the stars in Illinois. There's not the humidity in the air. There might be smog in L.A., Doug, like Shanghai, but there's there's no humidity there. And so I think some of the stars are, are clearer there. There's a time where we um, we took a little side trip to a camp, and I walked down past our cabin to see this clearing, and I went, what did I say? I said, whoa! And so I went back and I grabbed Yvonne. I said, Yvonne, you've got to see this. 
look at this. And she, we stood there for a while. So our eyes adjusted and just said, wow. Just the whole star, oh, the whole sky was just packed with these stars, stars we hadn't seen before because we can't see them here because it's too bright or the humidity keeps it. It seemed to fill the whole sky. It's almost, almost as if we could just reach out and touch those stars is what it felt like. Well, in this verse, Isaiah 40, verse 26, we are told to go outside at night and lift up our eyes and to gaze into the heavens and to see the stars. But if you look closely, this verse in verse 26 tells us not to see the stars, but, but we're there to see beyond the stars. The stars are to stir our minds to think about the One who created the stars. We're to think about, as verse 26 says, the One who placed them in the heavens. We're to think about the One who who led the stars or leads the stars forth. We're to think about the One who's given names to all the stars. We're to think about the One who has so governed the universe that none of the stars are missing. Now in Isaiah's day, this would have been an incredible thing. In his day, there were no city lights around at all to ever diminish the view of the heavens. Israel has a climate much like California, very arid, very dry, and the sky would have illumined greatly. And he would have seen that every day. He could have gone outside to everyone. They could have seen these incredible stars. So we look at the night sky in the earth. There are about 6,000 stars that we can see. That's both hemispheres. So in any given hemisphere, there are about 3,000 stars. And uh, then on any given night, maybe about 1,500 stars that we can see throughout the course of of a night with a naked eye. And when someone in Isaiah's day would have looked at the, the night sky, they would have seen these thousands of stars out there every night. And I'm sure that Isaiah would have said, whoa, look at these. And maybe drawn to worship. Maybe said something like, great is the Lord. He is named thousands of stars. He can keep a thousand stars in His control. Not one of them is missing. What a great God we have, Israel. Now, we know a bit more about stars in our day than Isaiah knew in his day. One of the things that's really excited me about this verse is that this verse has a, a greater application to us today than it did to Isaiah's day because we can see more stars today than Isaiah could see or even understand back then. Since the invention of the telescope in the 1600s, astronomers have discovered more and more stars in the sky. And it's not merely thousands of stars that God has created. He has created not ten thousands, not hundred thousands, not millions, not billions of stars, not trillions of stars, not quintillion, <clears throat> quadrillion of stars, not quintillion of stars. We know that He has created sextillions of stars and maybe septillions and maybe octillions. We just haven't created a telescope big enough to see. That's God. We ought to see Him and just say, wow. Now, at this point in my message, I really thought about trying to describe for you the stars. But it says here in verse 26 that we are commanded to lift up our eyes and see He who created the stars. Now, if we would all go outside and say, hey, everyone, let's lift up our eyes and see the stars, what would we see? (laughs) We'd see one star. But with the uh, advent of technology tonight, today in this very room, we can see many stars. I want to show you a video. I know we don't, normally don't do this, but we've shifted everything up right in the middle of my message. I'm showing a video. 
Okay, it's not not the wave of where we're going, all right, but just as unique a unique opportunity for us here this morning. I want to show you a video. It's about 20 minutes long. It's entitled "Created Cosmos." It's uh, created by a, an astrophysicist whose name is Jason Lyle, in conjunction with the Creation Museum in Petersburg, Kentucky. I've talked to you about it several times before. People come to this museum, um, and it, it really extols creation, is what it does. And the first place you go, you have an opportunity. You've got this planetarium, and uh, you sit in there, and you kind of lean back. And, and how many of you have been to the planetarium here? Okay, good. I know quite a few. I would encourage you to go and, and take a trip there. You lean back, and it shows this uh, presentation of the stars and what it is. When, and I've got it on video today. So maybe some of you haven't been to this creation museum in Petersburg, but you've got it here today. Uh, bought it from them. Called them, asked permission to show it in church. And they said, absolutely, just go ahead and show it. We want to get the message out. It's the most important thing. Some of you have seen this video before. I've shown it at Flocks. I've shown it uh, youth, with the youth before. Some of you have seen it, but you know what? I've seen it dozens of times, and every time I think I, I learn just a little bit more. So I know if you've seen it, you've, you've got more to learn. And uh, I trust that uh, as you see this, your, your mind will be blown. So this is about 20 minutes. After that time, I'll dismiss the kids. Maybe they've got some questions for the Iversons. They can answer some of those questions. Uh, and then we'll get back and we'll look into the Word. All right? So if we can hit the lights, Mark, that would be great. We can, uh, let's see, here we go. continually amazed at the astonishing diversity and beauty we find. Though marred by the curse, the universe still exhibits the handiwork of the Lord. By learning more about the intricacies of the celestial realm, we gain an infinitesimal glimpse into the infinite mind of God. One extraordinary aspect of creation is the incredible range of sizes and distances we observe. The International Space Station orbits approximately 200 miles above the surface of the Earth. This is far higher than any aircraft, and yet it really isn't very far into space. The Earth itself is nearly 8,000 miles in diameter, and yet the expanse beyond extends to distances that we cannot truly comprehend. The space station and other man-made satellites represent only the surface of a celestial ocean. The Apollo astronauts traversed a much greater distance. Traveling at the speed of a bullet, they took three days to reach the moon. The moon lies at an average distance of 240,000 miles from Earth. This is the farthest that human beings have traveled into space. Yet, the Earth's distance from the sun is 400 times greater. The Earth orbits at an average distance of 93 million miles from the sun. 
but the outer planets orbit at much greater distances. Neptune orbits 30 times farther from the Sun than Earth does. The dwarf worlds Pluto and Eris are even farther out. Their orbits do not lie in the same plane as the planets. The orbits of all the planets could be contained in a cube that is six billion miles on a side. Yet the distance to the stars is far greater. The next nearest star system is Alpha Centauri. How many solar systems would fit between the Sun and Alpha Centauri? The answer is an astonishing 4,278. It is a distance that is almost impossible to imagine. see that Alpha Centauri consists of more than one star. The combined light from these two stars appears as a single star in our night sky. Alpha Centauri A is the larger and brighter of these two stars. It is a glowing orb of hydrogen gas very similar to the Sun, though slightly larger. Its surface temperature is around 6,000 degrees Celsius, the same as the sun, and so it has a similar color. Alpha Centauri B is slightly smaller and cooler than the sun. Alpha Centauri A and B orbit each other every 80 years. A third distant star of this system called Proxima Centauri is faintly visible. The constellations look very similar to the way they look from our solar system. This indicates that most bright stars are far more distant than Alpha Centauri. The Big Dipper is a familiar sight, and so is the constellation Cassiopeia. Except there is now an extra star in this constellation. That is the Sun. As seen from Alpha Centauri, the Sun is just a bright star. The planets cannot be seen at all from this distance. As we journey back to the solar system, the constellations change only slightly. The Sun is over 100 times larger than Earth in diameter. And while most stars are smaller than this, some of the brighter stars in our night sky are considerably larger. Sirius is the brightest star in our nighttime sky. Sirius is bright because it is relatively nearby, a mere 50 trillion miles away. It is almost twice the diameter of the sun. The light blue color indicates that Sirius has a surface temperature of around 9,000 degrees Celsius. So, blue stars are considerably hotter than the sun, whereas red stars are cooler. Pollux is a member of the constellation Gemini. 
It is a giant star, nearly ten times larger than the Sun in diameter. The constellation Orion is a familiar sight in our winter sky. It has a number of stars even larger than Pollux. The center star of Orion's belt is called Alnilon. It is a blue supergiant. Twenty-five suns could be lined up across its disk. Blue stars like Alnilam are very luminous. They expend their fuel quickly and cannot last billions of years. So, blue stars remind us that the universe is much younger than is generally claimed. Secular astronomers are forced to assume that stars like Alnilam have spontaneously formed in the recent past. However, star formation is riddled with theoretical problems and has never been observed. Rigel is also a blue supergiant. It stretches nearly 70 suns across. As amazing as this seems, even larger stars have been discovered. Betelgeuse is one of the largest stars in the solar neighborhood. It is a red supergiant, even larger than Rigel. Betelgeuse is roughly 600 times the diameter of the sun. Betelgeuse were placed at the center of our solar system, we would be inside it. Betelgeuse would completely engulf the inner planets. The size of Betelgeuse pales in comparison to its distance from our planet. Astronomers often use the term light year when referring to stellar distances. A light year is a measure of distance, not time. One light year is roughly six trillion miles. Betelgeuse is over 400 light years away, or 2,400 trillion miles. Yet, it's one of the nearest of Orion's bright stars. Alnilam lies over 1,000 light years away. Now we will travel much deeper into space, several hundred light years toward Orion's belt. On our journey, we get a sense of the astonishing distance to these stars. The Hyades star cluster is visible on our right. We pass Bellatrix, the nearest of Orion's bright stars. Next out, Betelgeuse slowly drifts across the scene. A myriad of faint stars continually glides past our field of view. We are now roughly 400 light years away from home. As we pick up speed, we pass by Rigel and Safe. Finally, we reach the nearest stars of Orion's belt. We have traveled a distance of five million billion miles into space. We glance back in the direction of the solar system. It is located here. However, the sun could not be seen from this distance without a telescope. It is a humbling experience to think of our entire solar system reduced to an invisible point. The constellations are completely unrecognizable from this distance. Although many of the same stars are visible, they no longer connect in a way that makes sense. Since we define the constellations as seen from our solar system, they point the way home. And as we travel back to the sun, 
they return to their familiar shapes. We now know that our sun is not the only system with planets. Astronomers have detected one or more planets around each one of the indicated stars. Several hundred extrasolar planets are now known to exist, and it seems likely that countless more remain undetected in the depths of space. In most cases, the planet itself cannot be seen directly. It is lost in the powerful glare of its host star. However, astronomers are able to measure the slight wobble the planet gravitationally induces on its star. This technique allows us to estimate the orbital period and minimum mass of the planet. In some rare cases, the planet passes directly in front of its star, as seen from Earth. The star V376 Pegasi has a planet that crosses its disk precisely every 3.52 days. Astronomers can measure the drop in the star's brightness and determine the size of the planet. Of course, this technique is only possible for the handful of star systems that are nearly edge-on relative to us. This planet is larger than Jupiter, but it orbits 20 times closer to its star than Earth orbits the Sun. This so-called hot Jupiter is a serious problem for secular models of planet formation. These scenarios had predicted that gas giants can only form far away from their parent star. Yet the vast majority of extrasolar planets so far detected are hot Jupiters. It's a difficult problem for secular notions, but not for biblical creation. Such diversity is what we would expect from the biblical God. This is the Upsilon Andromedae system. It has three known planets. All three are larger than Jupiter and orbit remarkably close to their star. The innermost planet is estimated to be 20 times larger than Earth in diameter. Its proximity to the star makes its temperature over 1100 degrees Celsius. Since current technology is not able to observe these worlds directly, we can only speculate what they look like. But we can be certain that their richness declares the majesty of their maker. In addition to stars and planets, the universe contains nebulae. A nebula is a cloud of hydrogen and helium gas spread over a vast region of space. Many nebulae are very hot and give off light. They are some of the most colorful objects in the cosmos. Some nebulae are relatively small, produced by the ejected gas of a single star. These are called planetary nebulae because many of them are round and appear like an out-of-focus planet. Planetary nebulae are quite common. Other nebulae are much larger, spanning many light years. These amazing creations can rightly be called the artwork of God. Our summer evening sky contains a number of other objects called globular clusters. They're too faint to be detected with the unaided eye, but are easily seen in binoculars or a small telescope. The globular cluster M4 is found just to the right of the red star Antares. Through binoculars, 
M4 appears as a faint, fuzzy blur. However, a telescope reveals that this blur is the combined light of thousands of stars. This is the most distant object we've visited so far. M4 is 7,000 light years away from Earth. That's 40 million billion miles. This globular cluster contains roughly 100,000 stars. Yet, it is only 50 light years across. This incredibly dense star field would be a wonderful sight. In addition to these countless stars, M4 also contains a strange object called a pulsar. It is thought to be the crushed core of an exploded star. Powerful beams of radiation emanate from the star's magnetic poles. When a beam sweeps past our field of view, we perceive a bright flash. However, if our solar system were not in the path of the radiation beams, we would not detect these pulses. By measuring the precise timing of these pulses, astronomers have learned that this pulsar is orbited by a planet. As with all extrasolar planets, we can only guess how this planet may appear. The view from this world must be absolutely breathtaking. On the other hand, it would be difficult to see beyond this bright star field. If we lived in a globular star cluster, we might never know about the vast universe beyond. M4 is merely one of more than a hundred globular clusters that belong to our galaxy. This is our galaxy, the Milky Way. It spans 80,000 light years across and contains more than 100 billion stars. The Milky Way is a spiral galaxy. The brighter stars are concentrated into arms that wrap around the disk. Since our solar system is within this disk, we see the Milky Way as a cloudy band in our night sky. No human being or spacecraft has seen our galaxy from the outside, as shown here. It is difficult to grasp just how large our galaxy is. Our solar system is located here. In fact, with the exception of M4, all the stars and planets we've visited are within this little ring. The Milky Way is a remarkable demonstration of God's power. But what's even more amazing is that our galaxy is merely one of billions. Every one of these faint clouds is an entire galaxy. As we pan upward, we see a strange band where galaxies seem to be missing. This is called the zone of avoidance and is aligned with the disk of our galaxy. Although many galaxies are undoubtedly in this region, gas and dust in our own galaxy prevent us from seeing them. Further up, we see a massive grouping of galaxies called the Virgo Cluster. It contains over 2,000 galaxies and is 50 million light years away from Earth. At the heart of the Virgo Cluster lies the giant elliptical galaxy M87, which has over one trillion stars. Galaxies come in a variety of shapes and sizes. Each one is a glorious demonstration of God's limitless power. 
Critics of the Bible have suggested that it is impossible for the light from these galaxies to reach Earth in only 6,000 years. They claim that these galaxies prove the universe is billions of years old. But in fact, there are several different ways to get light to travel these distances in a short period of time. These include gravitational time dilation, alternate synchrony conventions, and others. In fact, spiral galaxies are a serious problem for the notion of billions of years. Their spiral arms contain vast numbers of blue stars, which cannot last billions of years. Also, spiral galaxies rotate differentially, meaning the inner portions rotate faster than the outer portions. So the spiral arms cannot last billions of years. They would be twisted beyond recognition. But it's not a problem for the biblical time scale. From the Virgo cluster, our entire galaxy appears as a grain of sand, lost in a vast ocean of galaxies. Yet the galaxies shown here are only a small portion of the cosmos. Beyond this distance, astronomers have cataloged only certain regions of the visible universe. At last, we begin to see the large-scale structure of the universe. The galaxies are organized into a complete tapestry of strings and voids. For clarity, only a few selected regions are shown here. This is the universe, or at least as much of it as our present understanding makes possible. Just imagine the power involved as all these galaxies leapt into existence at God's command. And yet the Bible describes the creation of all this with the single phrase, He made the stars also. The psalmist writes, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you visit him? We will now travel back home by zooming in by a factor of 10 every 4 seconds. The little circle is 10 times smaller than the large one. Every time we see a new circle, we've traveled 90% of the remaining distance home. The strings and voids of galaxies seem to disappear as we approach home. We plunge into the nearest several dozen galaxies called the local group. The Milky Way becomes visible at last. We're approaching our galaxy from almost directly above. We enter the Milky Way between two of the spiral arms. We can now see that these arms are comprised of billions of stars. As we approach our solar system, the stars slow down and converge to their familiar positions. We pause briefly to note that we are now able to recognize the constellations. The sun is dead ahead, but from this distance it appears as a faint star. At last we reach the solar system. The orbits of the outer planets are highlighted. We can now see the orbits of the inner planets, but the Earth itself is still invisible from this distance. The Earth may seem an insignificant speck compared to all that God created. Yet, this tiny world is where God placed the crowning jewels of His creation. Of all that the Lord created, human beings alone have the privilege of being made in God's own image. And though we have rebelled against our Creator, 
he's paid the penalty for our treason. It was on this small planet where the creator of the universe became a man and died our death. He then rose again and has offered forgiveness for all who call upon his name. It is fitting that we should honor God for who he is and for what he has done. I remember seeing this video for the first time and I, I left that room and just felt felt small. You feel small this morning? Do you feel small? You know why? You're small. And God is God is huge. As I blow your minds today, I hope that I blow them so that you see God for how big he is. Let's pray and then we'll dismiss the kids. <clears throat> Lord, I pray as we would open Your Word and see more of what Your Your Word says of Your greatness. May You show us how exalted You are. And may we in our own minds be greatly, greatly humbled. And may we bow our knee to Christ who alone created everything, holds everything together, sustains everything. So I pray You'd help us in these next few moments. Reflect upon you and your greatness, and may that merely be turned back to praise to you. I pray in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to dismiss the kids who want to go to Children's Church now. And we'll pause here briefly. You can still think about that video. <clears throat> Well, you can turn in your Bibles now to Psalm 19, verse 1. It's my first point in my message after a a long introduction. My first point, which is going to consume most of my message this morning, is this. The heavens declare the glory of God. comes straight from Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. And their expanse is declaring the work of His hands. You look up in the heavens, you saw that video, it's just the glory of God, 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 which is being communicated here. There's several different ways in which the, the glory of God is being told. First of all, the sheer size of the universe tells the glory of God, and, and I think the video does a great job at that. We can't even begin to comprehend these distances. We just, we just can't. They are beyond anything that we can imagine. The video does a good job of describing how big our solar system is, how big our galaxy is, and how big the universe is. Maybe another attempt would help you. I uh, Think about, um, suppose the earth were a pea. You guys know what a pea is, right? A half a centimeter in diameter, little thing you just pop in your mouth. Um, if the earth were a pea, the sun would be a beach ball about 60 yards away. And Pluto would be, that dwarf planet would be a a tomato seed out by Walmart someplace. A mile and a half away. So let's bring all of that solar system back into a piece. Suppose our our solar system is the size of of a pea. Then the Milky Way would extend from here in Rockford to Minneapolis. How far that would extend? 100,000 light years across. Now let's take that, 
that from Minneapolis to Rockford, and let's, let's crunch it up to be a P again. The farthest that we have seen is a half mile away. Some 13 billion light years away. It's the farthest galaxy we've seen. And as I said earlier, the problem isn't there that there aren't more out there. The problem is we've not built a bigger telescope yet. I think as God sees the Hubble Space you know, Telescope being created, He said, it's a good job. Nice try. Try again. So we try again. We'll see more. He says, i got more to show you. Keep, keep learning. Keep growing. Get these telescopes bigger and bigger and so you can see more and more of His glory. And, and, and that's all they do. They just point these things into the dark space and they get them bigger and they're like, whoa, there's some more there. Sheer size testifies to the glory of God. We have no idea where the universe ends, if it ends. Then Isaiah 40, verse 12. Here's the astonishing verse that will show you how big God is. It says that God has marked the heavens by the span of His hand. That's God. The hand of God is big enough to measure the whole universe that that we can't even think about how big it is. We can't even see. Much less you think about man-made objects. It said in the video that the farthest man has traveled is the moon. The farthest a man-made object has traveled is the voyagers who, who are just now leaving the solar system. Maybe they left it five years ago, ten years ago. Just leaving the solar system. You know, they're shooting out some 10,000 miles an hour. And they just just got past that. And they'll fly for a long time before they hit anything. That's the glory of God. I want it to sink in that God holds His hand and spans farther than we can see. It's God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Not only the size declare the glory of God, also the number of stars testify the glory of God. Our galaxy holds several hundred billion stars. Now, I don't even think that we understand how, how many a billion is. Um, you know how long it would take for you to count to a billion? If you'd count one number a second, one, two, three, four, five. Thirty-two years later, 999,999,999, one billion. And we're talking hundreds of billions of stars in the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is one of hundreds of billions of galaxies. So if you you do the math, you discover the universe contains more than 10 billion trillion stars. Now, do you have any idea how many a billion trillion is? Now, let's put it this way. Counting one million numbers each second, one million, two million, three million, four million, five million. It would take 32 million years to count to a billion trillion, counting a million at a time. I mean, it's just, it's just astronomical how many stars there are. And then, according to Isaiah 40, verse 26, that we read earlier, it says, The Lord leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Not one of them is missing. See, God doesn't merely number the stars. That would be 
That would be an incredible feat in and of itself. But God names the stars. And there's a big difference between numbering and naming. How many of you can count to a hundred? Andrew, can you count to a hundred? Can you count to a thousand, Andrew? Maybe. Hannah, can you count to a thousand? No. Okay. A thousand. How many of you can count to a hundred thousand? I think you probably, probably all can. Let's think about a hundred though. We got about maybe a hundred people in this room. How many of you can name all the people in the room? Probably not. How many of you can name a hundred people just in general? I think, I think a lot of you can. Maybe a thousand? Maybe a thousand, a hundred thousand people? I don't think any of us can name a hundred thousand people. It's way beyond our grasp. But think about this. God has named each of the sextillion stars in the universe. He's got a unique name for every single one of them. He's not missed a single one. I want to read a quote for you from uh, Sergei Brunier. Describe the process that astronomers went through when they tried to number the galaxies, let alone stars. Hey, galaxies, you know, hundreds of millions of, uh, hundreds of billions of stars in each galaxy. Listen to what he says. At one time, astronomers had an ambition to catalog all the galaxies. Charles Messier, Louis XV's astronomer, discovered about 60. And at the end of the 19th century, the Danish astronomer Johann Dreyer recorded nearly 10,000 after three decades of observations. Look at the star for 30 years in uh, the end of the 19th century. comes up with 10,000 galaxies. He thinks he's doing pretty good. He's got them on his ledger, 10,000. And he's not even naming them. He's numbering them. Okay, here's galaxy number 592. Here's galaxy number 6,767. The turn of the century, the astronomers, who are quite ignorant of the true nature of the small indistinct patches of light they were finding in the sky, still had no idea the utter impossibility of the task they had set themselves to. Nevertheless, as the power of telescopes increased, so too did the number of galaxies. James Keeler, who studied them with the Crossley 91-centimeter telescope at Lick Observatory, estimated in 1900 that their total number was slightly more than 100,000. We've come a long ways from 1900 to 2008. How many galaxies do you think we will observe by 2100? Lest we think we're real smart, we've got it all figured out. I mean, my, my sermon might date itself. Put it in a time capsule so somebody listened to it, you know, 80 years from now. <laughs> His estimates were so small compared to what we know. Between the 1950s and 1980s, astronomers, the observatories at Palomar in the northern hemisphere and La Silla and Sliding Spring in the southern commissioned Schmidt telescopes, a form of wide powerful wide-field camera with the aim of mapping the whole sky. The sensitive plates that were obtained were so rich that scanners linked to powerful computers running shape recognition software had to be used to make census of galaxies. Several tens of millions have been recorded on the photographic plates. Since then, no further census of galaxies has even been attempted. So says Sergei Brunier. Think about that. With the advent of computers, scientists can't even number all of the galaxies, let alone all of the stars. I mean, you saw there on the video just those slight wedges, and, and that's because they've been looking and getting all of them, but it's taken so long that they can't even get to the next wedge. But the whole universe is scattered with that. 
We're always finding more, but God has named every single one. If only we'd listen to the Bible, astronomers would let God do His job. Jeremiah 33, 22 says, The host of heaven cannot be counted. You can't count them. This was back in Jeremiah's day when they could see the thousands of stars in the sky. So it can't be counted. And now we know really what it means. No, it means you can't count them. You can't count. I don't care how long a time. You can't count them. But God has counted them. His testimony was glory. And not only has God counted the stars. See, it's one thing to number the stars. One thing to count the stars. It's another thing to make sure that none of them is missing. I have five kids in my family and sometimes it's hard to make sure that not one of them is missing. Where did Stephanie go? (laughs) But God has all these sextillion stars. Not one of them is missing. Think about the books in your home. How many do you have? How many books do you have in your home? hundred books maybe? A thousand books? With uh, many homeschoolers, there's probably tens of thousands of books in some of your homes. You know what I'm talking about? How many of these books are missing from your shelf? Charles Spurgeon, I remember once said that books have wings. You loan them out and they fly away. Whenever you loan out a book, don't think about it as a loan. Think about it as a gift because oftentimes it's not coming back. That's, that, that's okay. That's how books are. But they've all got names on them and we can't even make sure that none of the books, which aren't moving, which just sit there until we move and we can't even make sure that all of our books aren't missing. And God, yet six trillion, sextillion stars, none of them is missing. Names them. It speaks of the wisdom of God. The heavens declare the glory of God in its size. The heavens declare the glory of God in the number of stars. Thirdly, the energy of the stars testify to His glory. The energy the sun produces is amazing. Converting 700 million tons of hydrogen into helium every second. The sun puts out 386 billion billion megawatts of power every second. That's like expanding straight from the sun. 386 billion billion megawatts of power. Do you have any idea what that means? I didn't think so. Let me, let me help you a little bit. <laughs> if you could harness all of the energy the sun puts out in one second, you would, somehow you got solar panels all around the whole sun, all the way, you know, just right, right close to it. You would have enough energy to sustain the world's energy needs for 500,000 years. You got a gas shortage? Gas expensive? It's free right there. You want to solve the world's energy problems? Harness the energy of the sun. Now, providentially for us, our earth is located 93 million miles away from the sun so that we only receive half a billionth of the energy the sun produces. It's good for us. If we were close to the sun, we'd be fried toast. But even that's amazing. Now, much of the energy that's come in the sun is, is reflected off or maybe absorbed by some trees or absorbed by um, cool, cool or heating the earth so it doesn't freeze in the four Kelvin universe that we live in. But even the energy that we receive, if you would somehow have solar collectors over the whole face of the earth and be able to collect all the energy that's coming from the sun with, with losing none, in 15 minutes you'd meet the world's energy needs for another year. 
It's amazing energy. It's a lot of power. And then think about this. Our son, <laughs> just an average son. Think about Beetlejuice. How much energy do you think Beetlejuice is putting out? Or Rigel. Ours is an average son. Some are less powerful. Some are more powerful. It's just average sun, average star in the universe. Now try to think about the energy produced by the stars in the Milky Way galaxy every second of every day. I mean, it, it, I can't describe how big that is. Hundreds of billions of stars putting out as much energy in a single second to support all of our energy needs for 500,000 years. We can't even begin to understand the energy contained in our galaxy, but our galaxy is only one of hundreds of billions of galaxies putting out similar amounts of energy every second of every day. Now, think about the glory of God. You see how, how great God is when you realize that He created it all. He spoke it into existence. Psalm 33, verse 6, By the word of the Lord the heavens were made, and by the breath of His mouth all their host. Psalm 148, verse 5, He commanded and they were created. He just spoke it into existence. All this power, all this energy, which is beyond understanding. And you get a sense of the biblical account that the creation of the universe wasn't too difficult for God. Uh, I love the account in Genesis 1.16 describing the creation of the sun and the moon and then he says, and he made the stars also. It's like, you know, well, I'll just make the stars. In fact, Psalm 8 describes the heavens as the work of his fingers. What, what, what do you do with your fingers? You, you do delicate work, Right? Like um, maybe writing a letter or a note. Or maybe uh, fixing your glasses, right, with your fingers, some screw. Or maybe clipping your fingernails, right? You just real, real easy work. What, what do you do with your hands? With your hands, you do more difficult work. Like maybe cutting a piece of paper, like moving your mouse on a computer, maybe turning the pages of a book. That's what you do with your hands. With your arms, you do even more difficult work. You, you eat an apple with your arms. I mean, your fingers are involved in it, but you're, you're bringing it all up. You put on your clothes. You open a jar of food with your arms. What do you do with your legs? Well, you, you mow the lawn with your legs. Or if you've learned well, you lift furniture with your legs, not your back, right? You, you take a walk. You go someplace with your legs. You walk next door. But when God made the universe, He didn't use His legs, didn't use His arms, didn't use His hands. He used His fingers. To create the universe. Jeremiah 32, verse 17. You made the heavens and earth. Nothing is too difficult for you. When Job speaks in Job 26 about how God hangs the earth on nothing, he says he obscures the face of the full moon. He described that whole creation process of everything as the fringes of his ways. Just like the, the very edge of his ways. The heavens declare the glory of God. And the more we learn of the heavens, the more we learn of God's glory. The size of the heavens declare His glory. The number of stars display His glory. The power of God is displayed in the energy of the stars. And we could go on and on and on. I've not said anything about the beauty of God. Those nebulae are fantastic that you saw. The, the different constellations, the shapes of the galaxies, they're beautiful. 
Go on the website, Hubble, Hubble Telescope. You can just click that. I was clicking there last night just saying, wow, this is really cool. And you see all these pictures of all these galaxies. And I was telling Yvonne last night, one thing's really cool is that you pull up this picture of this galaxy and it, it says, uh, here's the galaxy. It describes it a little bit. And oh, oh, there's a star and a star and a star from our own galaxy in order to get out there. And then it, it zooms into this little part over here and there are like several other galaxies there that you could potentially take a close picture of them and take another close picture of others. And the galaxies are beautiful. The, the spiral galaxies, there's a sombrero galaxy, there's an hourglass galaxy. There's all these different shapes of galaxies. They're beautiful. I've spoken nothing of the beauty of God, which exalts His glory. I've spoken nothing of the goodness of God, the way that He's provided us light for the day, light for the night, how we measure time by the sun, measure the months by the moon. We can travel the earth by the stars they did in the early days, finding the North Star, taking their sextants out. That's the goodness of God providing stars for us. Not living in a globular cluster so we'd be you know, inundated by the radiation. If we lived in a globular cluster, we couldn't see the glory of God nearly as well as we can now. He's placed us out on the edge of the Milky Way so we can see a little bit of the Milky Way, but we can see a lot outside of it. If we were in the heart of the Milky Way, we couldn't see everything either. It's the goodness of God to tell us of Him. It says nothing about the wisdom of God placing us perfectly in our solar system and our galaxy. Say nothing about the righteousness of God. Psalm 50 verse 6 says, The heavens declare His righteousness. There's just something about the heavens that declare how pure and right and holy God is. Everything in the heavens declares the glory of God. And if I would try harder, I would just fail in communicating everything. In fact, it's impossible for anyone to exhaust the glory of God as demonstrated in the heavens. Because as Psalm 113 says, His glory is above the heavens. In other words, I think that means that you take all the heavens and everything that we've been talking about that and that has begun to describe the glory of God because the glory of God is above the heavens. You need to get beyond the heavens to grasp His glory. And would you create a super, super telescope and see beyond that? Still not going to be enough because God's still above the heavens. Job said it well in Job 9, where he speaks of the God as the one who commanded the sun not to shine and sets a seal upon the stars, who alone stretches out the heavens and tramples down the waves of the sea, who makes the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades, talking about the constellations. Job 9 speaks of constellations in the chambers of the south who does great things unfathomable and works wonders without number. God does great things unfathomable. He works wonders without number. We can't understand. Unfathomable means we can't understand it. And that's what God has done. He's worked things we can't understand. And so I ask you today, what, what should be your response to these things? It ought to be just worship of our great God. Several times in the Psalms, we hear the refrain, Psalm 48, verse 1, Psalm 96, verse 4, Psalm 145, verse 3, Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. God is great, and as great as God is, He is greatly to be praised. In other words, our praise of Him ought to be in direct relation to His greatness. The greater the Lord, the greater is the praise due His name. It's like a, a majestic thing in creation. Why is it that we lift up Mount Everest higher than anything else? Because it's the highest mountains. Mount Shasta and Mount Lassen and Mount McKinley. I mean, those we lift up. 
But greatly to be praised is the highest of mountains. Greatly to be praised is the the biggest of gorges. That's why the Grand Canyon, the biggest, gets the greatest praise. And so also, God is great. He is greatly to be praised. And seeing the size of your God this morning ought to stir your heart to worship Him afresh with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. At the end of my message this morning, we're going to have an extended time of worship. We've only sung a little bit before, but I want us to respond to, to worship. It be a great opportunity for you. And a lot of the songs just speak about the greatness, the size, the awesomeness of God. But before we reach that time, I have one more point, which, you know what? It's going to stir your heart even more. Psalm 103, verse 11. This is my second point. Not only do the heavens declare the glory of God, the heavens also measure the love of God. This verse ought to take everything I've said this morning, everything on on that video, and turn it into amazement of His love. You ready? Psalm 103, verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. The heavens are high above the earth, aren't they? And as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness to those who fear Him. This morning we've seen the heights of heaven. They're incredible. We've seen no end to their height. They keep going and going and going and going as if there is no limit. And listen, church family, the appropriate conclusion from Psalm 103, verse 11 is this, so also is God's love. It keeps going and going and going and going. It measures high. And I say this, just as it is impossible to fully comprehend the magnitude of the heavens, so also it is impossible to comprehend the magnitude of God's love. Louis Giglio calls this astronomical grace. Astronomical grace has come to us. Now listen, there's no inherent reason why God has to love us. The psalmist asked in Psalm 8, When I consider your heavens, like we've done this morning, and when I consider the work of your fingers, the moon and all the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you take thought of him and the son of man that you care for him? But he does. What is man? But you do. And his love isn't a small love. His love is a great love. It's an astronomical love. If you go away from my message this morning, remember anything, I want you to feel small. Because we are small. We are really, really, really small. But that doesn't mean you're insignificant. The promise of Psalm 103, verse 11 is that God's love is of the same magnitude as heavens are above the earth. You've seen the heights of his heaven. I say, believe the heights of His love. And where do we have difficulty believing the heights of His love? Forgiveness of our sins. We say, no, I've sinned too bad. No, you know what? His loving kindness extends in Christ. He's forgiven all our transgressions. The love of God is great. Could we would think the ocean fill were all the skies of parchment made? Were every blade of grass a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God the man would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. 
It is unbelievable when you realize that God's love to us, we who play a small part on an insignificant planet, a small solar system, in an average galaxy, in a huge universe, is really beyond our wildest dreams. You know, God became like us. It says in Philippians 2 that though Christ highly exalted, He humbled Himself to come a man upon the earth. And how much did God have to humble Himself to come to earth? He spans the earth like this. He said, oh, spans the heavens like this. He says, oh, that planet there, I'm going to come and, and be, a, be a speck on that planet. And then not only be a speck, but be a despised speck for rebel worms who hated God. He came and took our punishment in His place. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? He can save the worst of sinners like Manasseh and Saul. He can save any of us here in this room. I don't care what sin you've committed. He can save you. But there is a warning here. Verse 11. Such astronomical love doesn't come upon all who walk the planet there is a qualification here. It says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His loving kindness toward those who fear Him. God's love comes to those who see and acknowledge God and tremble at His majesty and bow like the penitent thief, not even willing to lift up highs to heaven. That's the one that God looks to. And here's what I find amazing. is that people can see the greatness of God like see His glory. I mean, what I showed you today from this video and, and talked to you, I mean, we all know of it in general. Maybe we don't know it the specifics all the time, but we know of His size, His wisdom, His power. And there are a lot of astronomers and astrophysicists out there and smart, smart people who see all these things about God and then don't fear Him in the least. Deny His existence and blaspheme His name. Romans 1 speaks about that. Though they know... God, having been displayed by His uh, awesome power and divine nature, seeing through the things which have been seen, they didn't acknowledge Him as God. Didn't give thanks. Refused to acknowledge Him. And those people, God's love just doesn't continue to flow and shower indefinitely. There's a time when He comes to judge. He, he judges rebellious people. Don't fear Him. But for those who see the creation, and if anything I want to do today, I want, I want to put God big and say, I need to fear this God. Right? You encounter a guy who's, who's mean and got chains and he's, he's big and he's got a gun shooting at you. Are you scared of him? Yeah, you are. Are you scared of a bear? Yeah, are you scared of a tiger? Yeah, but are you scared of God? You better be because God is one to be feared. But see, if you fear Him, then He can come into His presence because His love will come upon you and you can enter His presence through Christ. That's why we worship Him. That's why we gather to church, because of Jesus. Well, we're going to close our time this morning with a time of, of great worship. And uh, we're going to continue to go on and on and on. Lots of songs of His creation. I, my, my prayer for you is your minds be blown away because you see God for how great He is and you worship Him with a great heart. So let me pray. Lord, I pray You would be great in our minds and that we would be small. We'd see the glories of Calvary. We'd long for Him. And I do pray also, God, as we have a time of worship and singing, may You 
delight in every way to receive our praise. I pray even this might be a special time just because we've been able to see You more clearly this morning perhaps than other Sunday mornings to really worship You from the wholeness and depths of our heart because of how great You are. I pray that we would realize and understand that as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is His love towards those who fear Him. So stir our hearts this morning. We love You and trust You in Christ's name. Amen.